Uh, but this is a great Bible. I encourage you. We've got about three more left out there. They're $10 on Amazon. They're $10 out there. And, and you think that I am recommending that uh, storybook Bible for your children, but actually I'm recommending it for you, okay? Uh, I, I gave a copy of that Bible to one of my neighbors a couple weeks ago, and this week he told me, this is why I brought it up this morning, he said, that children's Bible that you gave me was so helpful because I'm re- and like, it makes more sense to me. So uh, that is a recommendation, not just for the little kids, okay, but for the big kids. If they're all gone by the time you get out there, Amazon, uh, $10, okay? Jesus Storybook Bible. And I say that this morning uh, to make another point. That point being, we want to be a church all about Jesus, all about Jesus. In fact, we say as a a mission statement of our church that we are centering lives on Jesus Christ, centering lives on Jesus Christ. And we do that. One of the ways that we do that is through the scriptures. We want to be all about Jesus. We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to give our lives to him. We want to center our lives on Jesus Christ. But how do we know who Jesus is? How do we know that we should center our lives on Jesus Christ? We know that because of the scriptures. Now, there are other historical records that tell us that Jesus lived and that he died and that he had followers, but the best place to go to find information, to to look and to study the life of Jesus is the scriptures, the Bible. So that's why as a church, we want to be people of the book. And we constantly want to be looking in the book to see what it tells us about the person of Jesus, because that's what we believe life revolves around, the person of Jesus. So we're people of the book because we want to be people about Jesus. What that means practically is here at Centennial Church, most of the weeks of year, when you come and you join us for corporate worship, most of the weeks of the year, we are going to open this book and we are going to be studying through books of the Bible. Books of the Bible. Now, we will do topical messages. I have nothing against topical messages. But our steady diet, our normal diet here at Centennial Church will be to work through books of the Bible, large sections of the Scripture, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. We'll do topical studies, but even when we do topical messages, they will come from a central text of Scripture. We want to be a church of the Bible, a Bible-believing, a Bible-teaching church. So with that said, this morning, I want to encourage you to open your Bible. Uh, If you don't have one on your phone or that you brought, there are uh, old-fashioned kind in the chairs right in front of you. And open your Bibles, whatever device you may have or kind of Bible you may have, open it to the book of Philippians. This is our third week in this study of the book of Philippians that we're calling The Surpassing Worth of Knowing Christ. Uh, the book of Philippians. We've spent several weeks on the introduction, and this week we're moving on uh, to verses three through seven this morning, three through seven. So just uh, by way of review, if you don't know where Philippi is, the Philippians are people who live in Philippi. We have a map And we've gone to this weeks before, but uh, over here is the Holy Land. This is where uh, Jesus lived. This is where he taught. But the Apostle Paul, after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, traveled around the Mediterranean world telling people about this Jewish carpenter, this rabbi, and in fact, this Messiah who came 
out of Israel, and Paul traveled this world. And on his second missionary journey, he founds this church. He forms this church in a place called Philippi. There is Philippi right there. He's traveled all the way up here and all the way gets to Philippi. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 16. In fact, the church of Philippi, we have more data. We have more information about how that church uh, was started than, than any other New Testament church that we know about. There's, a, there's basically a whole chapter devoted to the founding of the Philippian church. So we read about in that in Acts chapter 16. And then 10 years later, after he formed this church, Paul is writing this letter that we call Philippians to these dear brothers and sisters of whom he met, whom he knew, and he's giving them this, this, these instructions, this very encouraging, affectionate letter. Later, after chapter 16 of Acts, he's going to travel this way. And in chapter uh, 17, you can read about the church of Thessalonica and Berea. And then you get to Acts chapter 17. There's a large section in Acts 17 where Paul talks to the to the philosophers in Athens. All this is Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17. So this book, Philippians, is written 10 years later after the church was formed, probably about 61 AD, okay? And so we're picking up again this morning, uh, verse three, and we'll concentrate on verses three through seven, but I'm actually gonna go back and read verses one and two since... That's all we've covered in two weeks, believe it or not. I promise we're going to pick up pace as we go here. But I'm going to read uh, 1 through 7, and uh, then we'll jump in. I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in to the text this morning, okay? Ready? Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Father God, as we look into your holy word here this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would teach our hearts and minds and that in fact you would transform us uh, by the Holy Spirit, through the word that you have given us, that you would form us, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for each heart here, those that know you and those that don't know you, that you would do your work this morning through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So as we look at these verses this morning, if you want to just divide up this section, verses three through seven, basically I've divided it into two parts. Uh, part one, you see Paul's prayer. And part two, we see the Philippians partnership, okay? Paul's prayer and then the Philippians partnership. We'll start, of course, with uh, Paul's prayer, primarily here in verses uh, three through six, okay? 
A couple things, three things, in fact, that I see in Paul's prayer, the way he prays for this church that he is so affectionate towards. What do we see in his prayer? Three things. We see that Paul is thankful, joyful, and helpful. Okay? Thankful, joyful, and helpful. This is the way he prays for these dear brothers and sisters in this church, miles and miles away, and by by the way, I should mention, Paul. most scholars think that Paul is writing this in Rome. He's in prison, he's, he's chained, he's uh, on lockdown, but he's writing this joyful letter from Rome to uh, the church in Philippi. And we see his prayer here. It's thankful, joyful, and hopeful. First of all, thankful. Look at verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. If you uh, have an NIV translation, it might say, every time I remember you, I pray for you. He is very thankful for uh, the Philippian church. Verse four, going on, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. His prayer is consistent here. He's thankful for this group of people. You see that elsewhere in uh, verse 8. We'll get further uh, into verse 8 in a few weeks, but verse 8 says this. Hear here his uh, love, his affection for the Philippian church in verse 8. It says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He loves them. He's thankful for them. Why is he thankful for them? Two reasons. Two reasons he's thankful for them. He's thankful for them because they are partakers of grace with him. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. You might want to underline partakers there. What does he, what does he mean? He's saying, you, you have partaken of God's grace with me. You have trusted Jesus as your Savior. There's this grace of God, this unmerited favor of God, and you have found it, or it has found you. You have believed the story of Jesus that I've told you. You've partaken of this grace. Therefore, we have this commonality. We are partakers of the same grace. We are on the same team. We are now in the same family. We are partakers of the same grace. There is a unity that happens amongst people that have embraced grace through Jesus. So he's thankful because they are partakers, but not only are they partakers, they are also partners. Partners. The title of today's message is Partakers and Partners. Look with me at the partnership in verse 5. Verse 5 says, uh, or starting back in verse 4, I make mention of you in all my prayers with joy. Why? Verse 5, with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. He's thankful that they've partaken of grace. He's thankful that they are now partnering in God's grace. They are partnering in gospel ministry. So he is very thankful as he prays for them. And I want you to note here by way of application, you notice that he says, when I remember you. As I remember you, he does what? He prays for them. When God brings you to my mind, Paul could say, when God brings you to my mind, I bring you to God. I pray for you. That's something you need to hang on. That's something you need to apply. Uh, There's a lot of reasons that things pop into our mind randomly, right? 
uh, you're driving down the road, you're in the shower getting ready in the morning, you're just checking your email or whatever, and someone's name just pops into your head. Well, it could be the burrito that you had for lunch. It could be, you know, numerous reasons. But often, folks, I would say often and more often perhaps than we really recognize that that is God's way. That is the Holy Spirit reminding us, you know what, I need to pray for Brent. Why did God just, why did, why did I just recall Brent? Why did I just recall Brad? Maybe it's God, maybe it's the Holy Spirit prompting you to pray for him. So I've become a stronger believer in this. And so I, as your pastor, I hope that, I, that I'm obedient to this, but that God will put people in my mind. And I think that I take that as a cue from the Holy Spirit. Maybe I need to pray for them right now. Sometimes I'll send them a text message, whatever. Uh, that's what Paul's saying here. That's what he's doing. When God brings you to my mind, I bring you to God. Do that. Will you do that with your kids, with your friends, with the people in your community group, those that are in the hospital? When God brings someone to your mind, bring that person to God in prayer. So first of all, thankful, Paul's prayer. First of all, he's thankful. Secondly, he's joyful. Look at verse four again. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Again, doesn't need to be uh, expounded much, but again, he's joyful. That one of the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. This book, Philippians, is full of joy. What I mean by that? Well, he talks about joy. If you read these four chapters in Philippians, more than a dozen times, Paul is going to talk about joy, either the noun joy or the verb form rejoice. And this is the first occurrence of it right here in verse four. I pray with joy. Think about that. Here's a guy imprisoned. Here's a guy persecuted for his faith. And what's the fruit of the Spirit welling up inside of him? Joy. Even in some pretty unfortunate, bummer circumstance, he's saying, I'm praying for you from prison, chained up. I'm praying for you with joy. So we'll see joy a lot in this. I think we have this on the screen, the theme of joy in Philippians. Uh, Not only does he have joy as he prays, he's joyful because of their partnership. We'll see later in the chapter, uh, he has joy that Christ is being preached he has joy through people. Uh, actually, let's look at that one. Flip over to uh, Philippians chapter four, verse one. Look how dear these people are to him. Again, I know I'm emphasizing that a lot because it's all over the place here. But chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, hear that affectionate language, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord. He's calling these people, this church, this dear church. He say, you are my joy. Folks, the biggest burdens in your life will be people and the greatest joys in your life will be people. You know that? You know that, parents? But you'll experience a great amount of joy as you invest in people and that's what has happened with the Apostle Paul. Joy through partnership, joy through preaching, joy through people, joy through perseverance. We'll get to that in chapter two and also joy through unity. Joy, joy, joy. Down in my heart, right? How many of you have sung that song? Paul's got the joy, joy, joy down in his heart. We're gonna see that over and over. He's thankful, he's joyful, he's also hopeful. Look at verse six of chapter one with me. Verse six of chapter one says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's hopeful. 
This is the confidence that he has. He says, I know that God specifically brought me to Philippi to minister to you. He supernaturally guided me there. You see that in Acts chapter 16, the beginning verses. It wasn't Paul's plan to go to Philippi. And then in chapter 16 of Acts, you see that the Holy Spirit rerouted his plans. So Paul is confident. I know I was supposed to go to you. You responded to the gospel, this good news. And because the Holy Spirit opened Lydia's hearts and opened your hearts to respond to the gospel, God began the good work, right? Does it say that they began the good work? No, he's confident. I am confident of this, that he, God, who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I need to slow down here because I'm starting to preach. But I'm actually, we're not gonna spend any more time on this today because when we come back after Easter, we're gonna have this baptism party after church on April the 3rd. I hope some of you will consider being baptized. But on April the 3rd, I'm gonna preach just on verse six, primarily for our baptismal candidates. That, hey, you're, you're getting dunked today. You're getting dunked, down, baptized, immersed in water. And that is a sign that you're united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ, you will never become ununited, disunited with Christ. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, okay? So that's chapter six, I mean, verse six, excuse me. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But that's, he's hopeful. What God starts, God finishes, and that ought to be a huge comfort to you and I, because I know there's a lot of things in life that I start and then I drop the ball on, I don't finish it. God's not like that. And let me encourage you this morning, if you're weary, if you're discouraged, if you're hopeless, and you feel like, man, I don't, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel like I've measured up. Folks, it's not about your qualification. It's not about your measuring up. The promise of the gospel is that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Doesn't say you'll be faithful. I hope you will be. But the hope is not your faithfulness. The hope is God's faithfulness. He started it and he will finish it. Let's move on. The Philippians partnership, the the Philippians partnership. Uh, Three other things here we see about the way the Philippians partnered in the gospel, okay? Uh, Not only did they partake of the grace, not only did they partake of the good news, but they became conduits of sharing the good news, of partnering in the good news, So you could say it like this, partakers of the good news pursue partnerships in the proclamation of the good news. Let me say that one more time. Partakers of the good news pursue partnerships in the proclamation of the good news. They accepted Christ. They began to follow Jesus, but they weren't a cul-de-sac of God's grace. They were a conduit of God's grace. They became an avenue, a pathway of God's grace to partner with Paul's work, to partner with other mission work, both in Philippi and around the world to, to proclaim this gospel of grace, this good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So uh, their partnership is gospel-centered. Look again at verse five. Why is he joyful? Why is he thankful? How is he partnering? He's partnering in the gospel, in the good news. They are partnering and getting this message of good news to the world. 
And it's good news. It's a proclamation. It's not good works. The news that they're sharing is not, hey, you know, you need to grab hold of the eightfold path. You need to find the four pillars to peace with God. That's not what they're saying. They are partnering in a good news message that Jesus has done it all for you. That's good news. They're partnering in the gospel. Look also in verse 7. Verse 7 shows this clearly also. You are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. How are they partnering? They are partnering in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They, They aren't just sending Paul to go and tell people about Jesus though they are partnering with him. But he says that they are also working in the work of the gospel, defending the gospel and confirming the gospel. They're sharing that in their neighborhoods, in their place of influence. One of the things we like to say around here at Centennial Church is that every believer is a minister and a missionary. You're a partner in the gospel, you could say. And that's what they're doing. They're partnering. They're they're finding opportunities to share the good news with the people in their family, with the people that they love. Folks, this is also our call to partner in the gospel. I mean, there's no better week. There's no easier opportunity for you to partner in the gospel than Holy Week, than Easter week. I mean, it's just laying right there to pick up. Hey, you have any place to worship this Easter? I'd love for you to come worship with me. What an easy on-road. What an easy way to partner in sharing the gospel with people. People, your neighbors expect you to invite them to church this Sunday. I mean, they just, they know it's coming. You can partner in the gospel and not just inviting people to Easter, but beginning to to be that person in your neighborhood that that throws the parties, that has the get-together, that loves the neighborhood kids on the block, that create a place for people that think the gospel and the Christianity is implausible to begin to love them as Jesus does and make opportunities to share that good news with them. They're partnering. Not only is their partnership centered on the gospel, but their partnership is also personal and prayerful. Personal and prayerful. Look over at verse 19 of chapter 1. Look at verse 19 of chapter one. Paul knows that the Philippians have been praying for him personally. He knows they're they're praying for him. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, yes, I will rejoice. Uh, Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He knows they're praying for him. They're personally involved in partnering with him through prayer, through encouragement, They haven't just sent Paul on his way, but they are praying for him. They are sending encouragement. Another way that they're personally involved in Paul's ministry is that they send this guy named Epaphroditus. Look over in chapter two, verse 25. Another way they've personally invested. They put skin in the game. Verse 25 of chapter uh, two says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and the last part, and messenger and minister to my need. What's that saying? Epaphroditus was this guy in the Philippian church. 
And the Philippians want to encourage Paul. So what do they do? They send a representative from their church. His name is Epaphroditus. We haven't named any of our kids after Epaphroditus yet. You be the first. But Epaphroditus, they send him to Rome to encourage Paul because he's in prison. They also send some cold, hard cash with Epaphroditus to help him out in his ministry to fund what he's doing. So not only are they just praying, they're also paying. And they're sending this guy to encourage, to to sit by him, to, to, to stand by him and encourage him as he goes through this storm, as he faces the pressures and the temptations and the obstacles that would be his ministry. So their ministry is not only gospel-centered, their partnership is not only gospel-centered, but it's personal, it's prayerful. They are invested in it. They've sent this Epaphroditus to minister to his heart, to provide for his needs. And that brings up point number three. Point number three is they were partnering financially and faithfully financially and faithfully. And now some of you are beginning, oh gosh, here it goes. Financially, we're gonna talk about money. Yes, we are. That's what, that's what was going on here. They had invested. Look, look over at chapter four, verses 15 through 18. I said that they sent Epaphroditus and they also sent some cash to fund Paul's ministry, to support him and to support the other churches in Thessalonica and Jerusalem. They wanted to help the ministry, not just in Philippi, but worldwide. So verse, uh, excuse me, chapter four, uh, verses 15 through 18. Actually, let's start in verse 14. Chapter four, verse 14. He writes, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. They're sharing They're partnering. Verse 15, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Yeah, people were frugal then, frugal now. (laughs) You're the only ones that partnered with, with me in this ministry. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, And check out verse 19, this wonderful verse. Verse 19, this wonderful comfort. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. A partner, personally, prayerfully, and here financially, faithfully, And then Paul gives them this wonderful comfort, according to verse 19, that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now we pull that verse out of there and put it on coffee mugs and bumper stickers and whatever. But what's the context of that promise? The context of that promise is to givers, to people that are sacrificially supporting the ministry that God is is doing throughout the world, that they have this promise that God will provide all of their needs, not wants, but all of their needs. So now we come to that awkward point in the morning 
where you're like, here we are visiting church and they're talking about money. This is what all the preachers do. Are we gonna be that church that's always talking about money? Is that what Centennial Church is gonna be about? No, we're not gonna be talking about money all the time, but we are gonna talk about money every time the Bible brings it up. And guess what? The Bible brings it up probably more often than you and I are comfortable with. (laughs) So we talk about it. As one of our elders, Elder Bob, reminded me this week, you know what? Our job is not to make one another comfortable. I'm sorry. My calling as a pastor and preacher is not to make you comfortable. I hope you have nice seats. I hope you got some great coffee. I hope you were warmly welcomed. But when it comes to the teaching of the word of God, my job is not to make you comfortable. In fact, if you, talk, if, you, if you look at the people in scripture that really meet God and that come face to faith, face to face with God and the gospel and this message of good news, how many of them walk away from that comfortable? <laughs> it radically changes us. It puts new obligations and new demands and new responsibilities of us that we have been partakers of God's grace. Now we have to be conduits of God's grace, partners in the gospel, prayerfully, personally, and financially. So we have to talk about money because guess what? Jesus talked a lot about money. The scriptures talk about money. So I got to get in your business here a little bit this morning and say, how's your partnership? Personally, prayerfully, financially. Notice, notice also that in this passage that their, their financial giving was not just once in a blue moon. Look back uh, with me at verse five of chapter one. He's thankful because of their partnership in the gospel, right? We've talked about that multiple times. Verse five says, but look at the, look at the faithfulness in verse five. He says, because I'm, I'm making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, how long? From the first day until now. How long have they been partnering in the gospel? Personally, financially, prayerfully? From the first day until now, this is where we get this idea of it's faithful, it's consistent. They were praying, they were giving consistently, faithfully from the first day until now. We have to talk about money because the Bible talks about money. And folks, we live in Collin County. How can we not talk about money? How can we not talk about accumulation and greed and excess and materialism and keeping up with the Joneses or the Smiths. The Joneses always get a bad rap, you know? I think it's because of Jerry Jones. We live in Collin County. How can we not, how can we be faithful to God and not talk about money and not talk about debt? The clear teaching here in this passage of Philippians is that they were partnering in their money. And folks, we live in Collin County, okay? I know we have nice stuff. I have nice stuff. I have a nice home. I have nice cars. We don't live in Haiti. We don't live in Haiti. You and I can't live on $2 a day. We all agree? Right. But what we do have to do is bring our lifestyle before the feet of Jesus and under the authority of scriptures and at least ask ourselves the question, how much is enough? 
how much is enough? I have a nice house. I have nice cars. There's projects I want to do around my house. There's other things. I, there's vacations I hope to take. And it would be wrong for you to tell me, hey, you, you can only spend your money on this kind of car. You can only do these kinds of, you can only live in this size house. I think it would be wrong for me to tell you, hey, you, 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 know, you can only drive these styles cars. You can only spend this so much on a house. That, that, that would not be the spirit of, of the scriptures. That would be legalism. But here's, that would be wrong. But here's what I know also is wrong. It's also wrong not to ask the question. And so the question I'm asking, the question I'm posing this morning to myself and to all of us is how much is enough? When does it become excess? When does it become keeping up with the Joneses? We live in a culture that says, go, 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 spend, 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 get, get, get. If you can't pay for it now, pay for it later. And folks, the scriptures would tell us, I think, whoa, whoa, whoa. How much is enough? How much are we giving versus how much are we spending? I think there's a couple huge ways as believers in Christ that we can stand out, not in a weird, whacked out way, but that we can stand out and make a difference in our culture in this day, in this place, in this time. One of them I've talked about before is by what we've been saying recently is by being radically relational. And an example that I make of that is that I think what sticks out today is when you and I get together and we have lunch and we have coffee and this thing stays in my pocket and I don't look at it the whole time I'm with you. Do you know how saturated we are with, with screens and technology? And, and those are good things, but at some point we have to evaluate how much is too much. And God has called us to be relational, connected people, to love one another as I have loved you. This is the way uh, people will know my, you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. Uh, I think increasingly in the months and years to come as a Christian people, one of the ways that we will stand out and make a difference in our society is by, is by being deeply connected, deeply relational people instead of virtual electronic people. That we will value sharing meals together, that we will invite neighbors into our homes and friends into our homes to have true FaceTime. There's another way I think that we can really make a difference and that is that we examine, we evaluate how we spend our money and that our priorities as a believer are fundamentally different than the values of this world. I'm not saying you can't have nice stuff. I'm not saying you can't spend on X, Y, or Z. I'm just saying as a believer in Jesus, you have to evaluate the question, am I committed to partnering in gospel ministry or is everything that I have just for me, myself, and I. Are you partnering? Are you giving? If you haven't been on our website in a while, one of our, one of our core values is mission. And we tease that out by saying that uh, everyone is a minister and a missionary. Every believer is a minister and missionary. I think we have a slide of this. Every believer is a minister and missionary. Now look at this second line. 
In a culture of accumulation, we give ourselves in sacrificial, excuse me, service to the church, our neighbors, and the nations. Everything around us says, get, 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 buy, buy, buy. And over and over, the Bible tells us, sacrifice, 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 give of yourself. The way we view our time, the way we view our money, the way we view relationships should be fundamentally different than the world says. And I'm not saying we become whacked out weirdos that stick out like a sore thumb and just become weird. This is that tension of being in the world, but not of the world, right? But the way we spend our money, the way we invest our money is a better way to say it, has to affect, has to be affected by our values as gospel grace-filled people. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave, that he sacrificed, that he gave of himself, that he emptied himself. We have a generous church. We do. We are uh, in the third month in our budget. We are uh, about $12,000 behind our, our general needs. That's typical. It's not crazy bad or anything. It's typical that January and February are slower. But we need you to partner in the gospel ministry here and gospel ministry that we're doing around the world. As a church, we need to be a generous church. And I'm not talking about you right now. I'm talking about as a corporate family, we need to be generous in partnering with other ministries to further the gospel. Now, I'm sad to say this morning that in our budget that we just uh, approved about a month ago, 3.3% of our, of our monies, of our budget, goes to partnering in mission agencies and gospel ministry locally and globally, 3.3%. I'm not proud of that. But what I am proud of is that three years ago, before I became the lead pastor of this church, it was less than 1%. We want to be a, a church, not selfish, not building a kingdom right here on Coit Road in Frisco, Texas, but we wanna be generous as a church. And so we've made a commitment as elders and deacons as best as possible to each year increase that percentage of giving to gospel ministry internationally, globally, as well as locally. I encourage you to do something like that yourself as a family. Elizabeth and I, when we first got married, we decided we were gonna regularly give. It wasn't 10%. But we, we started with a percentage and we've been able to increase that percentage and that monthly amount as we've been married now almost 10 years. Giving consistently, faithfully. Elizabeth and I, have, we set aside a, a percentage that we give to the church and we set aside other amounts that we give to East West, that we give to Young Life or to Samaritan's Purse or to uh, Voice of the Martyrs or other organizations. The point of this, folks, is that if you have partaken of God's grace, you become a partner in moving God's grace and expanding the gospel to the ends of the earth. Partner, partner with us, partner with other ministries. It's clearly part of the scripture here that, the, that people who are gospel-changed people partner in gospel ministry. Let me give you some other stats. 
as a church. I don't know who, I don't know who gives what at our church. I don't know. I don't want to know. Uh, but we do get statistics, analysis on some of this stuff. And I'm happy to tell you that 80% of our members give to Centennial Church. That's awesome. In a lot of churches, it's the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people give 80%. We have 80% of our members. I'm not talking about guest attenders right now, okay? You guys can you know, tune me out. This is, this is about our members. People have assigned a covenant and said, this is my church. 80% give to Centennial Church. But what that means is 20% of our members gave nothing in 2015. Now, that could be, by my estimation, uh, because of three things. Number one, you're just ignorant. And I don't say that offensively, just, you just don't know. You just don't know that you're supposed to give, that this is part of partaking and partnering in the gospel. Hopefully this has helped this morning. Uh, the second reason that you might not give uh, is because you're in trouble. Financially, yeah, I mean, you are over your heads. And if that's the case, I just, I just encourage you, don't sit and soak in guilt. This is the time to step out and ask for help. If you are in over your heads, our elders or deacons, or we can find you counselors to, to help you so that you can get in a place where you can give in a healthy way. So you could be ignorant, you could be in trouble. And if you're in trouble, again, I beg you, I plead with you, this is the morning. Take a step, ask for help. Man, I, I'm, this is out of control. I can't give because of X, Y, Z. Let us help you. Uh, and the third reason that you may not give is simply because you're in rebellion. <laughs> you're just ignoring the scriptures. You're ignoring what God has said here. You're ignorant, you're in trouble, or you're in rebellion. This brings up the whole question. I don't have time this morning. I'm already running long. I don't have time this morning to talk about tithing. You know, does that mean I have to give 10% of my income? Is that net or is that gross? I don't have time to answer all those questions or talk about it. It's complicated. Here's what I have done. We've put an article on our website, centennialchurch.com backslash tithe, okay? Don't go there now. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a page that gets a lot of hits on our website. <laughs> uh, but we just put it up there yesterday, okay? But uh, if you want an article about this idea of giving, this is brief page and a half article by a, a scholar I deeply respect, are Christians required to tithe? Okay, we'll link to that on Facebook and Twitter stuff later. Okay, I encourage you to read that tonight or tomorrow. Okay, it's a great little article. I don't have time to talk about that right now. Here's the point. Those who have partaken of grace partner in the message of grace locally and globally. Are you partnering? I wanna ask you this morning to evaluate your partnership. Evaluate. Are you, do you have people that you're personally praying for in ministry, that you're regularly, faithfully praying for in ministry, people that are serving in Russia, people that are serving in Africa, in hard places in the Middle East? Are you regularly, personally praying for other people? Are you partnering in the gospel in your own area? Are you reaching out in your workplace, in your neighborhood to, to be a conduit of grace and to be a conduit of the good news of Jesus? How is your partnership? How is your partaking? I want you to spend some time evaluating. Where are you? Are you giving regularly, generously to gospel 
ministry, whether it's Centennial Church, whether it's East-West Ministry, Samaritan's Purse, are you giving? Are you supporting gospel ministry? Evaluate. And here's my challenge. If you evaluate and if you find that all your time and all your money and most of your prayers are centered on your own needs and your own wants, perhaps you've discovered that you are really worshiping your own selfish self. Are you partnering? Those that have received grace, share grace. Would you bow your head with me? As our worship team comes forward, they're gonna do a special for us this morning to reflect upon these things. And I'm gonna ask you, uh, I'm gonna give you a minute to reflect on this. And I even have some questions that we're gonna put on the screen. You can just take a moment and reflect on some of these questions. And then I'll close us in prayer and our worship team will sing for us this morning. Can you put those reflection questions up? So I encourage you to read these, to pray silently right now. And then I'll pray for us. Spirit may be you that brings conviction to our hearts, not a preacher, not uh, the emotion of a message or a service, but Holy Spirit, we invite you to search our hearts in areas that are sometimes not black and white, but gray. Lord, you would examine us and help us to bring our lives in conformity with your holy will. Father God, we thank you that we have partaken, many of us have partaken of the grace that has come to us generously in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, your perfect son. Those that haven't experienced that grace, Father, I pray that they would give their lives in following you right now and receiving that grace and becoming a partner and sharing that grace. Father, show us how to partner. Show us how to proclaim the good news locally as well as globally, personally, as well as corporately. Father, our desire is to use these few years of our lives, not for ourselves, but for your kingdom, for your gospel proclamation. We thank you that in your deep love for us, you sent a missionary who came and gave us grace brought us good news through the cross and his resurrection. Prepare our hearts to celebrate next Sunday with joy 
with celebration, with confidence that Jesus has come and he is coming again. It's in his beautiful name we pray.